0: The knights lie face down on the floor of the church as the choir begins to sing. Winter has barely gone, and the stone pressing into their faces is hard and cold. But the knights don't get up. They shiver as they listen to the solemn, clear voices of the singing churchmen running through psalms and hymns. As the singing reaches a crescendo, the knights now hear the slow, steady footsteps of a bishop and a bevy of priests pacing around them. They smell the rich, sickly scent of swinging incense burners and feel the cool spray of holy water being sprinkled around them. They listen as the bishop calls out to God to preserve them all from diabolical attack and enemy ambushes. Should the knights get unlucky, the priests ask that they shall be granted a smooth path towards heaven. Then the moment finally comes that they can pry themselves from the icy floor and approach the bishop himself. They all promise to serve the church with their bodies and their souls. To join an army of the faithful and fight for a year against the enemies of Christ. The bishop gives them each a little white cross to sew on their clothes. They've all now sworn to become Crusaders. This in itself isn't so unusual. The holy wars in the Kingdom of Jerusalem are still raging, and Pope Innocent III wants all hands on deck. What is unusual is exactly who is among this group of newly pledged holy warriors. There's someone here who really hasn't been serving the church too well for most of his life. He's not a knight. He's a king. King John of England, the Plantagenet ruler who's ridden roughshod over every one of the Ten Commandments he can remember, who was, until recently, excommunicated from the Church by order of that same Pope Innocent III. John is one of the least likely crusaders it's possible to imagine, but here he is, wiping the dust from his shirt. And telling the Bishop of London that he's going to catch the next easy-jet to Crusaderville and give the infidel a piece of his mind. The date of King John's cross-taking ceremony is March 4th, 1215. In the Christian calendar, that's Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. It's a day John's picked carefully. Lent is a season of penitence, of saying sorry, of atoning for your sins? Is this John finally admitting what a low-down, dirty scoundrel he's been all his life, and seeing the error of his ways? Is he going on crusade because he suddenly developed an intense fear of damnation for his misdeeds? Or, John being John, is there some other secret agenda? Well, if you've been listening this long, I reckon you'll have your suspicions and rightly so. John's talking the talk, he's even making a show of walking the walk, converting what little cash he has left into the international currency of gold and ordering ships to be kitted out for a long trip. But he's not doing it because he loves God and yearns to see Jerusalem liberated. He's doing it because he's a desperate man, under attack from almost every side and starting to run out of options. Seven months ago, John's allies fought a decisive battle at Bouvines. John staked his political future and a vast sum of cash on winning. He lost. Now in England, his barons, fed up with being bullied and extorted, are on the brink of rebellion. John's taking the cross, hoping the church will protect him from the oncoming storm. He'd better hope he's right. Otherwise, he's a dead man walking. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For, season three. Episode nine, the Army of God. I don't think it's easy to feel sorry for King John. Even so, you have to admit that what happened at Bouvines in the summer of 1214 was a kick in the teeth. He was so close to turning his whole reign around. In 1213, he'd sorted things out with Innocent III. He'd built up a handsomely paid network of allies, including his nephew, the Emperor Otto. He'd had another great win just before Bouvines when William Longsword had led that triumphant raid on Philip Augustus's navy. He'd finally made it over to France with his army, which he'd failed to do so many times before. And then, Bouvines itself was a really close-run thing. Otto was within a whisker of capturing, maybe even killing, Philip Augustus before the tide of the battle turned. So all in all, it was really hard luck. Then again, like they say, you get the luck you deserve, and like they also say, what goes around comes around. One thing's certain, after Bouvine, trouble comes hurtling John's way. Or in the words of William Marshall's official biography, after Bouvine, began the war, the strife and criminal conflict between the king and the barons. As we've heard. John is no stranger to conflict and strife with his barons. He's been taxing them, meddling in their business as a stay-at-home king, and asking them to ride to war for places in France they don't really care about. And there was the highly unpleasant business with the Breuse family. There were whispers of a conspiracy from the barons to murder John and his family, which caused him to halt his invasion of Ireland. But that's nothing compared to what comes next. It begins in earnest in January 1215, two months before John makes his crusading vow. It's at this point that he makes his first serious move to smoke out his enemies among the barons, who smart observers think are readying themselves to launch a coup against him. Two ringleaders have already broken cover. Robert Fitzwalter and Eustace de Vesci. It's said they're extra mad because John tried to seduce their wives and daughters. True or not, both of them have fled England, more or less an admission that they are plotting something serious. So in January 1215, John invites a dozen or so of his most senior barons and bishops to come to London and tell him to his face what their problem is. He meets them at the English headquarters of the Knights Templar – a massive fortified compound just outside London's walls, kitted out with a stunning round church, a tournament ground and a lot of Templar knights, who have a reputation as being the toughest in the world. That itself is a sign of just how worried John is. The Barons arrive in a bullish mood. They've already been holding meetings of their own, and they're being advised by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury foisted on John by Pope Innocent III. Langton is playing peacemaker, but he leans more to the rebel's point of view than the king's. Seeing as John nearly gave up his immortal soul to stop Langton getting the job of Archbishop, that's hardly surprising. Langtons advised the barons that if they want to hold John to account, they need a proper list of demands to place before him. What might that look like? Well, he's gone rooting around in the history books and found a document that was issued by John's great-grandfather, Henry I. When Henry came to the English throne in 1100, he'd drawn up a charter a document granting a list of rights and privileges to his subjects. Henry had basically promised not to hammer his barons with new-fangled taxes, to write off debts to the crown, and to abolish evil customs, whatever those might be. Langton recommends the barons try to get something like this out of John. So, when they arrive at the temple in January 1215, that's what they ask for. The trouble is, John isn't interested. His back may be up against the wall, but there's no way he's going to sign up to anything that will prevent him from raising taxes and governing the way he wants to. That may sound pig-headed, but after Bouvine, John is financially in a double bind. He agreed a peace deal with Philip Augustus to avoid losing even more than he already had, but Philip had made him agree to pay 60,000 quid for the privilege. That's a debt John has to service if he doesn't want very bad things to happen. He needs to start raking in more cash soon. So he can't and won't agree to the baron's demands at the temple. He tells them very vaguely that he's not going to agree to this nonsense, that he needs time to think, and that he'll come back to them at Easter. The meeting breaks up, with tempers flaring. It doesn't take a political genius to work out that if there's no peaceful settlement on the table, John's English barons are going to start kicking off. A civil war could well be on the cards. If John isn't prepared to play nice with his barons, then he's going to have to protect himself some other way. And he only has until Easter to figure out what that might be. Which is why John decides to make those crusading vows. It's an attempt to get Pope innocent on his side. At the same time, he's also got builders and engineers working on his most important castles, improving their defences. Down at Corfe in Dorset, they're enlarging the moat. In the Tower of London, new defences are being erected. And John's trying to use what little cash is in his exhausted treasury to hire foreign mercenaries to come to England in case he really does need an army to save his bacon. None of this looks like the actions of a king who's really sorry for what he's done, ready to own his mistakes and hoping to turn over a new leaf. It looks much more like a king who's going to dig in his heels, throw up the barricades And show his enemies he isn't going down without a fight. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Line from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started, to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. In the last days of April, 1215, William Marshall rides to a tournament field near Northampton. This is a lovely time of year. Spring has sprung, the countryside is bursting into life. But Marshall hasn't come to admire the scenery. He certainly hasn't come to partake in any tournaments. He's in his 60s now, and those days are behind him. He's here with Stephen Langton. Archbishop of Canterbury, to meet dozens of barons and many more knights, gathered in full armour. None of them are exactly happy to see him. Marshall is here representing John, and that's a problem in itself. Because John was supposed to be here in person a week ago to meet his angry barons, but he never showed up. He actually received some good news. Innocent III heard about his crusading vow and sent letters telling him that he's got his back 100% in any argument John has with his subjects. If they give him any grief at all, they can expect to be excommunicated by the church. John was pleased as punch with this. So instead of travelling to Northampton like he promised, he's lying low at Corfe Castle protected by the newly deepened moat. He sent Marshall to ask why the rebels don't chill out a bit and think about whether they really want not only to break the law, but to have their souls condemned to hell along the way. Now the fact that Marshall is here representing John, not teaming up with his unhappy barons, might seem surprising given their history. After all, Marshall's spent much of John's reign in self-imposed exile in Ireland. But knight that he is, Marshall can never stay away from the action for long. He also can't, or won't, duck what he considers his chivalrous duty. Marshall reckons loyalty is the highest virtue a man can have. So he's agreed to represent John no matter how difficult the task. At the tournament field, Marshall sees for himself just how fed up John's less than loyal subjects have become. In response to John taking his Crusader vows, they've set themselves up as a sort of rival Crusader organisation. They've adopted the name the Army of God, and they've elected as their leader the mega wealthy, extremely belligerent Baron Robert Fitzwalter. Now, we've heard that name before. Fitzwalter is one of the two barons who fled the country when word spread of the plot against John. He's super aggressive. His official seal shows him in full armour on horseback, about to slay a dragon with his sword. He's also fed up with John, for his arbitrary taxation, his tyrannical treatment of other barons, and, if the rumour mill has it right, for John's gross attempts to seduce Fitzwalter's daughter. Marshall isn't the kind to be scared of Fitzwalter. He's gone toe-to-toe with plenty of guys like this in his career, and usually come out on top. All the same, he's got to be worried on John's behalf when Fitzwalter tells him what the army of God wants. They've drawn up a draft charter which they want John to agree to. Historians call it, fairly unsexily, the Unknown Charter, It's based on the old coronation charter of Henry I, but it goes way, way beyond that. It has dozens of conditions. The barons want John to swear to protect the church, to limit by law the taxes he can impose, and to cut down the limits of land defined as royal forest, where a special, often very harsh code of so-called forest law applies. I'll tell you what that means in this week's subscriber episode. They also want John to promise he won't make Englishmen fight anywhere overseas except Normandy and Brittany, and to swear he won't arrest anyone without due process of law, nor commit any unjust act. That last line is almost hilarious. John without the unjust acts isn't really John at all. But the barons are deadly serious. Fitzwalter tells Marshall that if John doesn't agree to all of this, Or something very much like it, then they're going to start seizing his castles until he does. In other words, give Fitzwalter and his rebel allies complete control of government policy or its war. Marshall and Langton listen to all this and take several deep breaths. Then they leave Fitzwalter and the Army of God and travel back to Dorset to give John the bad news. Not surprisingly, John flies into a rage. Why among these unjust demands did the barons not ask for my kingdom too? He rants. Their demands are vain and visionary, and are unsupported by any plea of reason whatever. After quite a lot more gnashing of his teeth, he says that he will Never grant such liberties as would render me their slave. After a while, though, he calms down and says that maybe he'll agree to abolish a few evil customs on the advice of faithful men. In other words, no one involved at the tournament field. But that's a very long way from what anyone needs to hear. And in the end, events overtake John's ranting and raving. On May 5th, 1215, with John still nowhere near Northampton, The rebel barons in the Army of God lose their patience. They meet again on the tournament field and agree to renounce their obedience to the king. They've finally gone rogue. Fitzwalter sends a messenger to find John and tell him what they've decided. But if anyone thinks it's going to shock John into submission, they're all wrong. When he gets the message from the Army of God, John takes stock for a moment, then he issues two orders. One is basically a press release, a public statement saying how sad he is that things have come to this, that this is something the law will have to deal with and that the proper person to oversee negotiations is the Pope. The second far less weaselly in its words, is an order to the royal sheriffs across the country. He commands them to start confiscating all the lands, castles, and property belonging to members of the army of God. John's talking peace, but in reality, England is now at war. It's a war that will cost some of its leading figures their lives bring the country to the brink of collapse and foreign conquest, and produce one of the most famous documents in world history, Magna Carta. Find out how next time on This Is History.